This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Ledin.io. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week we get to dive deep with some of crypto and Bitcoin's most influential leaders. And I'm very excited because here today, we're going to have the father of the brain's operating system, which ended up becoming uh, one of the, the major operating systems behind the first operating system, the slush pool back in 2011. And over time, the, the, the brain's operating software has become one of the largest ones. And uh, to understand where mining came from, uh, why it's so important, but really what gives Bitcoin its value? What gave Bitcoin its value? in the first five years of its existence and why it's here today, because everything else, all of cryptocurrency exists today because of Bitcoin. And you need to understand originally why Bitcoin got its value and why we were so, why Jan and I, my guest Jan and I were so fervently into Bitcoin in the early days when it wasn't worth anything. Because if you could really understand that, you could understand where we are today how everything else fits into where we are today. Hell, you can make money off of that. You can quit your job, jump into this whole industry full-time. Jan Chopik, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. We have so much to talk about. Thanks for having me here. Please, I, I want to start. I mean, there's, there's so much um, data and information, and I can jump into our histories together and, and the histories of you and Bitcoin, but kind of... Uh, I'd like to know, because I couldn't figure this out in my research, you know, back in, in the early days, where did you actually first hear about Bitcoin and why did you get involved? Wow. I don't think I've ever asked that question before. When other podcasters like always ask that, but that's not really a question I ask. But for you getting involved so early, I'm genuinely curious. I want to know. Okay. I do remember exactly the first time <laughs> hearing about Bitcoin and that was actually uh, I was organizing a small sailing trip to Croatia, and by accident, uh, Slash uh, Marek Palatinus, he was a good friend of my good friend of my colleague from work, Pavel Moravec, who is the second co-founder of Brains. And we were together on the sailing boat, spending like a week with. Uh, we actually hired uh, a skipper for this, and he was basically training us. And a lot of us got excited into sailing. But one of the stories coming from this trip is that. We were actually sailing at night and we were discussing things. And this uh, Marek or Slash, I knew him from before, but I just heard that he's somehow involved in this Bitcoin concept, but I didn't know really uh, like if it's worth looking into it. And we like spent some time, he was explaining his, at that time, I think it was like 2010, uh, before, shortly, shortly or right after, after the pool has been, uh, has been uh, started, he was mining the bitcoins on, on GPUs, and we were discussing all all these things. So this was the first time I started thinking, like, hold on, there's something going on in here. But I kind of like put it aside until, and we have been still in touch. He was asking like interesting questions throughout the time, but uh, we stayed in touch. And back in 2013, that's roughly when he was kind of like fed up with running the pool on his own because it's a lot of responsibility that you need to take care of. And he basically invited me and Pavel. Uh, basically, Pavel is the unifying person because they were classmates from, from high school. I was kind of, you know, you know, you know the, the remote one. And you need to put a lot of trust uh, in, if you invite uh, more yeah. people into your, into your mining business. And we basically 
uh, took over the pool operation that was our our sole responsibility, and we built basically uh, it into a professional project. And by that time, we already had brains, or the complex called Brain System. So we had brains, and we basically used the company to operate uh, and uh, run the pool and develop the pool ever since then. Most people don't remember, but the early first Bitcoin software, um, up until probably 2012, 2013, but the early Bitcoin software was something that you download on your, you could download on your MacBook. Uh, eventually, when it was for OS X, you could download it on your Windows computer, and your the software would be a a wallet. It would be a node, and it would also mine. You'd be mining Bitcoin, right? As long as you had port forwarding set up correctly, which is funny. I missed out like on six months of Bitcoin mining because I didn't have <laughs> my ports forwarded correctly. Like I wasn't in- accepting the incoming connections. But it was a software that was doing everything. But as Satoshi famously once said. You could never be a percent closer to finding a block. Just like if you buy a million lottery tickets and there is 2 million tickets that will ever exist, doesn't mean you have 50% because, well, actually that would mean 50%. But with Bitcoin mining, there is no way to get closer because it is uh, 100% uh, done at random. And so what Slush was trying to figure out was how can you have a bunch of people kind of pool together and have it on a system. But the Bitcoin network didn't allow for, for uh, pool sharing type of situations. So in 2010, when the mining pool industry emerged with Bitcoin.cz that Slush launched, he developed this concept called shares. How did that change mining from, from that point on going forward? Well, I think one of the inefficiencies of the original uh, mining was that it was not possible to scalably, scalably connect more machines, or even if you think about uh, mining machines as, as CPUs, so at that time desktop computers, and concentrate them because the protocol was not really uh, suitable for that. You know, they were using the GetWorks uh, protocol, and that just didn't scale well. So he came up with the concept of Stratum protocol that basically allowed, uh, you know, have permanent connections of the miners and basically feeding them with work and eventually also aggregating the hash rate on the on the farm side, even though at that time it was kind of hard to difficult, hard to talk about uh, real mining farms, but I think they were solely being created. Uh, and that would still reduce the, the bandwidth and, and the uh, amount of computing power that you would need at the, uh, at the server end. So this concept, uh, very well scaled with adding more and more uh, mining machines to the network. So I think this was the, the genius idea of aggregating the hash rate and coming up with a technological solution at that time, Stratum V1, uh, yes. for, um, for uh, aggregating the hash rate in a scalable way. And the scalability is done by basically adjusting the difficulty for the machines, right? So essentially, you, you, you make it difficult for, for the machines that are fast enough that probably uh, represent some bigger computing power, let's say, aggregating, you know, at that time, gigahashes yeah. or whatever, or hundreds of megahashes. And the, the server would still, would still be able to cope with such uh, performance, uh, basically keeping a constant pace. Similarly, like in Bitcoin network, you find the block, which is kind of a share with that meets uh, the difficulty of the, you know, of the target of the network currently. Um, with 10 minutes, uh, the pool did or still does something very similar, basically having the miners 
submitting the result uh, every, I don't know, two, three, five seconds. And if you connect more, the pool would again react to this uh, situation. This stratum was such a, uh, an important piece of software that came out because before then, and, and what's crazy is that stratum is still being used today, stratum v2. And I know both come natively on the brain's operating system, which as far as I understand is the de facto uh, uh, mining operating system for, for you know, those who are mining in their basements. So those publicly traded companies mining in West Texas, it's so it's 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 one of the few aspects of our industry where we've had this like uh, consistency from 2010 until now over how a specific uh, uh, part of our industry is being run. And I and I kind of love that. So here we are in, in 2010 and in stratum and and mining is starting to become a thing that people are doing. I remember getting uh, trading on Ozcoin. And it was so difficult to mine, even with when you had a pool that had all the instructions and everything like that, it still became uh, uh, difficult to do. And even if you fast forward to 2012, running a pool alone became more challenging for Slush. So then how did you guys get together? You got back together in 2012, 2013, and then you guys merged with the Brains Operating System and Slush. I, I believe you actually. Uh, uh, overtook the company. How did that effectively change everything we know about mining? Well, maybe to uh, explain the history a little bit more precisely, the way or the thing that happened at that, I think it was April 25th, uh, 2013. You think you have like the date yeah. in your mind? Well, no, because the, the reason why I do remember the date was that we were taking over the pool. Basically, Slash at some point said, oh, I'm done. I basically, I'm, I'm exhausted of running this thing. And we need to do something about it. And he was super interested in uh, continuing with his next project, which was the Treasure Wallet. And, and the pool at that time was not a company. It was just a project. And we, me and Pavel had the company. So what we did, we basically ran the project through the company because we needed to rent like professional servers. And we started uh, slowly hiring new people on the team. So basically building a team because such a project at that time already required user support and uh, all these kind of things, basically trying to make it into a professional project that, you know, that would have a certain quality. Uh, so this was, this was the, the story. And at that time, Brains uh, was a company that, was, uh, that had its interest in embedded software. So we were building like a special software for controllers, for, for gensets, for generators. So it was like a different field, different major. But what it had in common is that we were able to write software that was running on real-time operating systems, on Linux and stuff like that. And these were like special dedicated applications that were trying to achieve some simple job uh, that the customer basically gave us as an assignment. So at that time, there was no Brains OS. But eventually, after, I think it was 2018, when we started the Brains OS project, uh, we came up to a conclusion that if uh, we want to, uh, you know, go back at least to the original ideas and to where Bitcoin was at the beginning, we have to complement the existing software stack with something that is generally available and is not uh, concentrated just in the hands of the manufacturers of the mining hardware. Because if you do remember those times, after uh, it was possible to use only Bitcoin Core for mining, the next step was that there was a software called CG Miner. There is still such software yep. written by Concolivas. 
And he basically designed the software for the GPUs to, to mine Bitcoin on the GPUs at the time when the difficulty allowed it. And this software became a base for the next generation of mining machines, which were, which were FPGA based, which is like a precursor for the ASIC I chips. And eventually FPGA. we had the ASIC chips uh, and the, the ASIC chips started coming in around the time when, when we basically joined the pool and started uh, developing the pool. And we were really busy for the next uh, couple of years to not even think about anything like this. But uh, in 2018, we finally had an opportunity to work uh, and on a firmware for, uh, um, at that time, the machines were called Dragon Mints. Yeah, Dragon but, Mints. Yeah, yeah. But we, we realized that um, there were some uh, changes needed in the mining protocol that was related to ASIC boost. Essentially, those machines were exclusively running only with ASIC boost enabled. And this required uh, this so-called mining configure extension in Stratum protocol to have in place so that the machine can actually uh, roll additional uh, fields in the Bitcoin block header so that it can use this full potential. Uh, unlike S9s, they existed at that time as well, but uh, the, the, those S9s, they have an option to disable the ASIC boost, which was the, the default for the majority of the users. And there were rumors that it is possible to use ASIC boost, uh, but nobody knew how, or maybe there was some limited group of people that had the knowledge or, I mean, we never figured out what the, what the, what the real truth was. And we, at that time, also published the paper explaining the whole story about, about ASIC boost, what we found out, and that we believe that even the original firmware from Bitmain was capable of doing ASIC boost, but it had a small flaw, which essentially made all the results coming from the ASICs invalid in terms of the Bitcoin network. So what you were looking for was a small tweak in the firmware that would make uh, the, the machine generate proper results, or having an alternative in the form of BrainsOS, for example, at that time, that could do it, uh, you know, from from you know from the box, basically. So this is roughly roughly the story. So 2013 is the biggest milestone where we started making the pool professional around Brains company, and in 2018 when we uh, developed the BrainsOS operating system. As you know, it's it's. Uh... I'm still waiting for my Butterfly Labs FPGA board, by the way. I actually got one. I got, you got, I got the, you're the only I one. Got I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I mean, Can I, I have? I, I actually mined, uh, I think, one Bitcoin with it, but it came like one later, one, one year later. And I think I paid like $2,000 for, for the Butterfly Labs. So that was the, the, the ASIC. It came like one year later. And yeah. I eventually, throughout the times, I think I made like one Bitcoin on it. But at that time, the exchange rate was uh, like $200. So it wouldn't pay off, but with uh, since I kept this specific Bitcoin, I I, I made some money on the, with this machine. So to give the <laughs> listeners a little bit of history, uh, you know the the mining arms race happened very quickly, and you'd go from mining on your laptops to then you'd mine on uh, uh, graphics cards. You know you go you ever go to it's like GameStop or Best Buy, and you see on the wall like all these crazy graphics cards with pretty colors, and you wonder who the hell's buying graphics cards and putting them in their computer. Well graphics cards started jumping off the shelves because we were we realized that you can mine a little bit faster. Well, then there were companies that figured out that you have these FPGA boards, and but supply chains weren't built up yet in Bitcoin. So most of these companies were taking pre-orders to build out potential long-term Bitcoin mining hardware. 
Um, but it turns out a lot of them were never, ever delivering their products. So they were mining on the Bitcoin miners at their most efficiency before they would ship them to you. And these were the days of the Wild West era until ASICs came about. When ASICs came and ASICs were applica are application-specific integrated circuit machines, basically paperweights, they can only mine Bitcoin at the most maximum efficiency possible. But if Bitcoin ceased to exist tomorrow, these machines couldn't do diddly squat. So therefore, building out the supply chains for these cost millions and millions of dollars. But back then, no one was really wanting to build out these long-term, but you had graphics cards and, and, and uh, FPGA boards that already existed for other industries that you can buy them and have them to market very quickly. That's why ASICs took a little bit longer. Side note, Yifu Guo, the founder of the, of the, the first ASIC for uh, uh, Kanan, Avalon ASIC, uh, I mined on the second one. He sent the first one to Mike Hearn, and the second one he sent, he didn't send it to me, but I was the only one with a car in New York City at the time in 2012, I think, 2013. And he called me up and he said, can you come pick me up from the airport? I got this big ASIC machine and we got to see if it works. And we plugged it in our office and I, we were mining like crazy amounts of Bitcoin or whatever, but we turned off the machine because it was getting very hot. And then Yifu ended up uh, delivering it away. Uh, crazy, crazy, crazy days. But why were people, before ASIC boost, why were people afraid of the ASIC? Why were we afraid of this like crazy way of mining Bitcoin 20 times faster, you know, and more efficiently than we would on, on our computers or graphics cards? What were we afraid of that it would do to our network? Well, I think there were some concerns about, uh, you know, glitches that the network would not be able to accommodate the additional hash rate, but it was not really the case. I mean, network absorbed the hash rate very well. You know, we have the difficulty adjustment algorithm. So that was not really the case. And I, I think there is nothing else that people were probably afraid of, except for, uh, you know, the, the aging of the hardware. Because at that time, even with the entry of ASICs, you could expect a, a, a very steep development curve where um, the initial ASICs would become obsolete almost in a, in a range of a couple of months until uh, the technology used for the ASICs almost, almost matched or literally matched whatever is the cutting edge technology for the today's or 2016 CPUs, let's say. 2016 was the uh, S9, I think, when it was released. Um, the beginning of the S9 too, not even where everyone had it. Right, and, and S9s are, are 16 nanometer technology, and at, at that time, this was the cutting edge uh, for, for the CPUs, pretty much. Uh, so at that time, I think the development slowed down and the investment into, into Bitcoin mining hardware become, let's say, more predictable. Uh, and looking back, uh, even today, this is the time when people slowly start taking the S9s off the shelves, even though there are projects uh, that still use them, for example, in the in the you know for the flaring in the in the, in the gas fields where you literally have yeah. free energy, but you need something where you want to burn it. So they still have a, a certain use, which is amazing. Where you know some people complain, oh, this is not ecological because you, you're basically wasting the hardware. But no, I mean this is a direct example. If the hardware has certain qualities in terms of manufacturing. Uh, it can it can last for a long time if it's using decent technology, and that was the case 
with DS9. I mean, it's amazing really to see them still operating after after five years. And now is the time when when the amounts of machines are slowly going down. Today's show is brought to you by our newest sponsor, Ledin.io, a better home for your Bitcoin. And they are amazing. They're secure, simple, and such an easy to use platform for managing and growing your digital wealth. You can earn interest on your Bitcoin and your USDC with some of the industry's best rates, 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin and 9% APY on your USDC. You can use your Bitcoin as collateral with their Ledin loans to get quick access to dollars or to double your Bitcoin savings with their popular B2X loan. If it sounds too good to be true, it's not because they've partnered with Armanino LLP to provide proof of reserve attestations. That means in a few simple clicks, you can log in and you can verify your assets on Ledin are fully accounted for. And this is truly first in class transparency and accountability. And I'm excited to get to the meat of the of, of what we're talking about here. We're giving $50 away in free Bitcoin to everyone. All you got to do is go to untoldstories.link forward slash L-E-D-N. And we're giving $50 to anyone who goes on and creates a new loan. And that can literally pay for your interest in the first half of the year, depending on the size of your loan. It's an interest-free loan. Why not? Might as well do it, right? Untoldstories.link forward slash Leiden. Thank you guys for being amazing. It's so funny because... Um, Someone reached out to me who owns gas fields in like Louisiana or whatever. And I literally told them, go buy a bunch of S9s. And just because your electricity is free and the S9 is the most widely available, but it's also like if it breaks, there are a lot of people around the world who know how to fix it, know how to operate on it. The S9 has become like the personal computer almost of the first in that first wave of the early day personal computers, where if yours broke, there was someone in your city who knew how to take care of it. It wasn't like you had to call back, you know, because those Bitmain machines and the early ones or anyone who made a machine, the manufacturer who made the machine was the only one who could really service it, parts and everything. How are you supposed to build a scalable business and a scalable industry where it's like very, very vertical integration? It's not, it's not the best way. Um, it's, I find it fascinating. Dude. I find it fascinating that the origins of our of the software that the operating system that we're using today uh, found its roots in, in embedded software for, for power generators. Because power generators are very decentralized things, but also, you know, it's generating power. And you're almost doing the same thing with Bitcoin miners. And I find the comparisons about what, you know, I, I've wanted to buy, by the way, what's, what's the best brand of generators? Because I've been looking at Kohler and Generac. I live in Florida, so we lose power frequently. I'm, I'm not an expert on no, this anymore. <laughs> I mean, things, I mean, I mean, there are companies like Atlas Copco that, that, you know, do, do these things, but those are like huge industrial things. Well, so here's a great example. My neighbor is looking to buy a generator and he's, and he was asking me which he should buy. The Kohler one is a, is a much more known brand. That can be serviced, you know, Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R makes everything from toilet seats to generators. Uh, anyone can service it. It's a lot cheaper. Um, or he can buy a Generac machine where it's more expensive. Only that company can service it, but all the maintenance is included. So it's like centralized versus decentralized. What do you think he should do? I don't know. <laughs> I, would go, I would go to the cheaper one. Yeah, that's what I told him. <laughs> 
I said the maintenance I contracts, I mean, insurance. The, the, the reason why I'm probably getting the generator is to get ready for some plan B if something yeah. really goes bad. And in that case, I, I'm not sure if the big companies would be available. So you want something that is generally serviceable and there are some chances that you're going to find uh, yeah, spare parts point. and people around that can find their, find their way. So I would go with a cheaper one for this case. So... 20, 2015 comes, uh, so you guys all work together and you, you uh, around 2014, you just, you figure out a way to professionalize pool operations. You, you start not only working on the defensive, but you're working on the offensive, introducing new things like enhanced payouts, monitoring for minors, transparency is so important and, and really a, a community voting mechanism. I would think that would be a default. And in 2017, when we had the Bitcoin cash and the Bitcoin whole conundrum, you were the first pool operator to allow individual miners to vote on which, which Bitcoin to support. Well, really, like now we know that it was more of an attack on Bitcoin. So it was a de facto. There was there was never really an option. But are we still going towards that decentralization of software? where the hash rate itself gets to decide on the vote if there ever is a vote? To kind of understand what my question is? Yes, I do. Uh, I think it, it's, it's still being used, but I think the, the uh, I call them hash rate wars. They're kind of yeah. over in terms of, I believe, after this uh, Segwit adventure, everything cooled down and people did realize that we have here something that is getting like super professional, uh, you know, the mining operations are now, a lot of them are publicly traded companies. The way they build the, their operation is at a different level. And basically there is just no time or nobody has any incentive currently in the, in the you know, in, in the industry, let's say, to uh, provoke any kind of issue like this, which I'm not saying it cannot happen, but should it happen again, uh, we still have mechanisms for, for voting and stuff like that, so that's that's still doable if, if it was in place. But I think for for example for the for the recently approved taproot, uh, the mechanism with the experience from the Segwit adventure uh, has been imp improved. I would say that eventually the the change would get approved, but after a longer time. So I'm not really worried about about this. Could. Could well we had so so if you remember the ant bleed backdoor and the S nines, and then we talk about ASIC boost, all of these things in in those years brought up that uh, not your firmware, not your miner. Is that still something people care about? At the end of the day, the money talks. So you have publicly traded companies; they have a lot of money from investors, and we've and we've spoken to these companies on the show before, and they struggle with. Right now, they don't have any compliance when it comes to, you know, the miner's ability to censor transactions, but that's coming. That's going to happen. China may have kicked out the hash rate, but other countries are going to, for the sake of things like terrorism and money laundering, they're going to want the software to have the ability for blacklisting Bitcoin addresses and things like that. And the day that happens on Bitcoin is the day I leave. It's the day I sell all my Bitcoin and I walk away because that's the experiment fails. How are you guys protecting the industry against that? 
That's a very tough question. It scares the but, shit out uh, of me. I'm not expecting an answer, yeah, but it's like let's talk about uh, it because let's yeah let's let's uh, talk about this from different perspective. Uh, let's put the firmware aside for the moment because I have a few few inputs in that area. But let's just focus on this censorship problem. So one uh, one aspect we tried addressing uh, while we were developing the Stratum V2. Uh, me and Pavel were thinking like how how this problem could be prevented. And uh, we basically came up with an idea of, we call it a job negotiation protocol. And essentially, uh, if, you don't, if you don't want to run your own, basically mining node, but by mining node, I really mean a pool instance because your operation is not big enough and you still want to aggregate your hash shake with a pool, you can still uh, choose a pool that will allow you to select your own transactions. And basically just agree on the transaction set with the pool. And the way it works, uh, it's not, it's currently being implemented. Parts of it are being implemented by uh by the Square Crypto guys who, who got the grant. So it's running decentralized out of our control. You know, like we 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 made some uh, original uh design proposals, but there's like really more uh people already involved with this concept because it caught their attention. Um so they are, I think nowadays they're proposing some, some pull requests into Bitcoin Core, uh, you know, some modifications so that they would have actually Bitcoin block template uh, streaming protocol more streamlined so that it's suitable for, for things like this. It's an essential component that's needed for the negotiation. Uh, and the negotiation is essentially the next step. So just, just briefly how it works is that uh, you as a miner select a certain transaction set. Let's say you're a fund of empty blocks. You're, you're, it's a corner case, but it's easy to discuss it. Uh, so you're a fund of uh, mining empty blocks. So you would always uh, propose an empty block to the pool, but you will start mining on top of this block right away. And the pool will only validate your shares eventually, or it would validate the shares on the go, but it would eventually make a conclusion if all the shares that you have submitted so far can be accounted towards your future rewards because the block that you propose has to have the reward going to the pool so that it can be distributed. Oh, yeah. So, and at the same time, while, while you're mining on, the, on, the, on this proposed block that you have chosen, uh, you let the pool in an asynchronous way do its own checks uh, basically saying if it approves your block template or not. And you can say, oh, this is another level of censorship. But no, because you can, you can have different, you know, different pool providers. And you, at the moment when you find out that your pool is not uh, allowing you to, to, to mine on certain blocks that you have chosen, basically you would detect that they do some censorship, whatever, you should choose a different one. There should always be the alternative. So that's that's the idea behind it. I'm not saying it's currently really needed, like that desperately needed, but we should have a failover for the industry to to do something like this. Because in that case, the pools uh, will not be responsible for the transaction selection. I know governments can attack the pools in a ah, different way. They can this say, is "Brilliant, yeah." I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of. Um, you're basically a step ahead, but at the same time, I mean, what prevents the government shutting down your servers, right? You, then you will have to find a different way or you would have to move to a different jurisdictions running through Tor. I don't know. I mean, you name it. I mean, Oh, so it's, I it's see just... you're saying that, that basically if I have a, a miner, you know, mining, let's just say Terahash, 
in my house, I'm operating the miner down here. I can almost uh, obfuscate or I can, the data that's coming from my house is not differentiated between the, any other type of data leaving my house from my other computers. And then the mining pool itself doesn't have the ability to select transactions. So therefore you prevent at any point from that even being a possibility. Yeah, I mean, this it's a that complicated is thing. It, 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 I mean, yes, uh, you are right. Uh, but to say the B part is that you have to be careful about the pool that you're connecting to. So I'm not speaking about man in the middle attack that has been solved with V2 because we have added uh, a noise, a, a protocol based on noise uh, protocol framework. It's the thing being used in Signal or WhatsApp, you know, for the end to end encryption. So now, now the connection between the miner that uses V2 and the pool uh, is actually en encrypted and it's authenticated. So anybody uh, touching the data on the wire as you go, like if somebody tries to do some modifications, the, the outcome on the other end is, is gonna be immediately detected. So it's not just encryption, but it's the modern way how you do crypto, basically AED. So it's called authenticated encryption and authenticated data. Uh, with auth with auth with encrypted data, sorry, authenticated encryption data. Uh, the the problem that I see uh, with this approach that still needs to be solved is on the pool side. You also have to come up with some smart accounting scheme because let's say you have miners that are really in favor of the empty blocks. And then you have regular miners that just want to mine, uh, you know, as big blocks as possible because then there is the maximum reward for them. Uh, then basically these would be subsidizing the miners selecting the empty blocks and proportionally uh, the amount yeah. of miners that you have that have this, let's say, disability or their their this this hobby of choosing just the empty block templates. Uh, they would proportionally mine this amount of empty blocks and you would have to penalize them somehow. But that's just an, a technical thing that needs to be reflected in the pool, but needs to be considered because it has all these aspects. And same thing, theoretically, you can have miners. Let's say uh, let's say your pool has one huge miner that takes 50% of, of your hash rate and the rest is distributed. If this miner is doing the censorship, uh, then again, uh, the remaining miners are at disadvantage in a way that they're basically participating in a, uh, this transaction censorship. So this all need, would need to be yeah. detectable. It is detectable, but needs to be reflected in the way the pool operates and what the pool has, uh, you know, in their let's say terms and conditions or what is their, you know, moral. It was level. a huge. It was a huge surprise in the in the uh, United States infrastructure bill, you know, attempts last few months. Because it was a big surprise where Bitcoin miners were put in there that needed to be uh, compliant. And this threw a lot of people off because, and tell me if I'm wrong, miners, those who are investing in mining, those who are running the machines, those who own the machines, those who operate the software, and all aspects of your industry, you want to be blind money printers in a way. You want to be securing the network, and that's it. You don't want to be involved in 
legalities, in moralities, in should the industry go this way or that way. They don't want, because that just adds another whole aspect of what you have to do to your day-to-day job. Well, it's maybe even an, uh, an extended, uh, let's say, attack surface, right? Exactly. Then you have more, more points where you can attack uh, the system. So, well, one thing to the bill, I'm not an expert on all the details. So what, what still makes me a little bit calm is that it's still not here, right? It still has to go through certain legal steps. Uh, what I found out, because I was in some Twitter space, in Trezor Twitter space, uh, where uh, some lawyers from the U.S., very knowledgeable, were speaking to to the bill, and what what they said is that um, it got into the bill as sort of as a side effect, and the reason why why the the amendments were not accepted is that there were other people that were actually against other amendments not relevant to to our you know mining oh. industry. So I'm assuming when uh, hopefully I mean this is going to get sort of like canceled or omitted out of, out of the bill. But I mean, it's my, maybe it's a wet dream. But if not, uh, I don't think it's, a, um, I think you already mentioned this. It's not a problem in a way that if this gets accepted and if it threatens Bitcoin, then the Bitcoin will fail, er, will fail early, right? Which is, yes. is, is a good thing. Uh, I doubt it's going to fail. But it's going to be a thing that would make uh, Bitcoin stronger, basically, not in terms of exchange rate, but stronger and more anti-fragile, uh, because it's going to prove that you don't change Bitcoin by the law, right? It's the Bitcoin that changes the laws, I would say. Oh, my God. That is so brilliant. You're so right. You're so right. And it's so heartwarming to say because you're right. That would almost be... It would be bigger than China and the hash rate. It would be such a bullish thing for Bitcoin because it would be the first time, you're right, where software had more control over law. That's a very scary thing to think about, but you're right. Wow. It doesn't care. I mean, it's, it's, I mean the, the Bitcoin stuff doesn't care, really. I mean, uh, some people were kind of sour about uh, you know, China banning Bitcoin, but again, it's making it stronger. It's just uh, a proof that the concept itself can survive even the government ban. So we'll see. I mean, uh, obviously, at, at at this point, it's kind of annoying. Like we all are a bit excited about stuff, yeah. but at the same time, uh, the the path down the rabbit hole cannot be easy. I would say it's uh, people have to deserve it, or uh, it's not worth it. I would say. Does it wow. make sense? Anyway? No, you're right. It's it, it wouldn't be worth it. It would be something that the industry can easily see coming before. And not only would it be a positive thing because it would show that we are anti-fragile and anti-resilient and resilient, but it would it would it's the one thing that you'd that we'd be scared about, and we'd be able to see it coming, and then uh, be able to attempt you know to fork against it if we needed to, or be able to build software against it. But it would definitely be an amazing thing. Wow, I can't believe I'm saying that. Uh, can I shortly speak uh, back to the firmware that, that I put aside? Uh, we started this discussion with the with the freedom and bleed and stuff like that and like if not your firmware, not your minor, right? Um, so I think the situation a little bit changes again with uh, some of the manufacturers, specifically referring to Bitmain, where uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, the new Bitmain machines they have a feature called Secure Boot, 
and you would say, wow, this is good, finally a secure, uh, you know, secure product. But this is not really the case. It's secure in a way that it secures the machine to run only the firmware provided by the manufacturer and not by not a firmware produced by anybody else because they have basically engaged the uh, RSA signing mechanism that is basically a one-time programmable uh, memory inside of the controller chip uh, where you burn the, your public RSA key. I'm assuming this is very easy topic because we are in Bitcoin, right? Everybody knows public private sure. cryptography. And now you have the whole boot chain of the bootloaders up to the Linux operating system that verify uh, each state's signature before loading it and executing it. And there's just no way unless there is some software bug found on the path. I mean, there are always software bugs, but in principle, this scheme is not breakable as, as it is. I mean, there, there could be exploits findings like small holes, but the manufacturer would still keep patching it. And essentially you're in a position like as if you buy a car today, where you cannot change the firmware in your car, right? For security reasons, or for sorry, for safety reasons. Uh, but Miner is not a safety critical design device. It's a it's a machine that you bought that you want to use to its full potential, to its full power, if you want to. And basically, you're again in the situation where you're not allowed to, uh, and have to make special workarounds in order to to run something else. So uh, this trend is not going to change until there will be more entities in the industry capable of producing hardware than just the few major, you know. And companies. we're going in that direction. You have more hardware manufacturers, more software. Yeah, I think it is changing. And... It's, I mean, you, you cannot enforce this, but uh, I think it's slowly changing because the companies do realize it. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we actually invested the time and money into developing from scratch the, the generic operating system I mean, it's Linux-based, so we didn't develop the operating system, but we built the core of the of the mining software called BossMiner, which is a, basically a new software written in Rust language uh, that drives uh, the ant miners, uh, the ant miner machines. So uh, that was our idea. We wanted to have this part of the stack under control. I love that, and uh, I, I hope that you guys continue doing what you're doing and the ideology and the love and the passion that you have i i hope that it continues that i have it that you have it that we all have it because it's that ideology of the anarcho-capitalism it's the freeing people it's the growing and the financial sovereignty it's all of that that wakes you up in the morning that puts a smile on your face and makes you want to do what you want to do every day so thank you again for doing that, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today as well. Thanks for having me here. It was a pleasure talking. To yeah, you. it's so, it's so funny because we were before the show we were we were we're talking about building you know the the software of of the of the financial system of tomorrow, but Zoom was breaking and we're sitting here trying to get oh, Zoom uh, working. <laughs> well, it's better than I mean yesterday was Facebook breaking, right? Yeah, so oh, yeah, it was good, good point. That Zoom was not down down. I was kind of we need Web three We need Web three Data shouldn't be put on all. It's just. Oh, we can have a whole other episode about that. Tune in tomorrow for Untold Stories. I am Charlie Sherman. I'll talk to you all later.